G'day guys, welcome to the Origin Canine Podcast, where our mission is to enhance the full life cycle of working canines and handlers. The podcast is now available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms. If you're looking for our Australian-made tactical canine equipment, go to origincanine.com. Enjoy the show. Guys, welcome to another episode of the Origin Canon Podcast. Um, so today we've got Evan Nolte. Um, Evan, you might know him on Instagram as Gen Mother Canine. Um, and bro, your business is called Paravet Canine, right? Yeah, the LLC is named Paravet Canine. And then I just had the Den Mother thing. It's kind of an interesting story that started as I was leaving the Army. Yeah. And that was because that's the team daddy den mother thing, right? Yeah. 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 Now and I know I, that. I mean, because... I had no from the last one. Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to like, yeah. uh, for anyone listening, um, Evan and I have already done a podcast, but this, the sound quality was really shit between me and you. I think mine was really quiet. Yours was loud. So I was just like, nah. You're too good a dude to like all the time. to have a shit podcast. So I was like, we just decided to do it again. So here we are. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't think I've ever listened to that. So uh, and some of your questions caught me off guard. So with this podcast, I could probably compare it to the old one and see how full of shit I am. You know? Oh, mate, I'll probably. I reckon I'll just delete that one and just put this one over the top just of start, it instead. Start, start over. Yeah. Because there's no, I mean, if somebody like is new to the podcast, I want them to be able to hear your story properly, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah what I questions still, got was... you off guard? Oh, when you started asking like childhood stuff, I didn't know you were going to like, <laughs> like, let's delve back into <laughs> when, when you're eight years old. What was that? Yeah, like? yeah. <laughs> you're like, I don't know, I'm a fucking adult now. <laughs> <laughs> well, should we hit it off there, bro? Should we go back to that one? Yeah, I mean, I'm ready for. Uh, I took notes. I didn't yeah. take notes, but I'm ready. I saw some of the questions on uh, Instagram. So, but those there's a couple solid. of good ones, man. Luckily, I just checked it before. Like, um, there was one extra one that I hadn't seen, but we're going to cover that question anyway. But it was a good one. Yeah. So, bro, take us like tell me, because obviously you're originally from New Zealand, and you obviously ended up in the U.S. Army. Talk me through growing up in New Zealand and then how you went from New Zealand to the U.S. I lived in New Zealand. I was born there, native New Zealander. Uh, my dad and dad's side of the family are New Kiwis. Uh, my mom was an American. So when they split up and divorced, my mom came back to the U.S. and brought me and my little brother, obviously, with her. Um, I, was probably, I was 11 or 12. So, yeah, 1998, <clears throat> moved from New Zealand to the U.S., uh, and then grew, obviously grew up in the U.S. ever since. I did have, uh, I think we said it in the last uh, last podcast, because I had some issues joining the U.S. military because I had tattoos already. And then I remember getting to the point where, because I just wanted to join the military, and to call the New Zealand Defense Force. And uh, I remember talking to the guy on the phone, and he was like, all right, here's all the stuff. I was like, yeah, well, I have tattoos. And the guy was like, oh, you know, good for you, mate. <laughs> 
it just wasn't it wasn't a thing for the New Zealand Defence Force so much. Like, that's, I, just remember, I just still remember that. Just the guy being like, "All right, I don't." Uh, it's a weird thing to tell me. Friends with you have know, arms and arm, they're like, "I don't know. You have too many tattoos." Really, I thought like the Marines was like there's heaps of guys with tattoos in there. Like that Cody, um, Cody Alfred dude, he's got them all over it. Might have got those after after you got but I think it's also easier to get them once you're in. Because uh, I did, I went to join the Marines first, and I had changed their tattoo policy like a few days prior to where you couldn't have anything on your forearms. And the yeah, the Marine recruiter was like, "Hey, well, you know, we can't take you. But don't worry, we know who will." And walked me, walked me down the army recruiting center. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, They'll yeah. Because yeah. I thought the Marines was like that. I thought the Marines was like a take anybody sort of option. I think you know during the GWAT, I think both ground branches were probably a little less selective than the Air Force, and the Navy. But uh, the Marines, I think, were is harder. Harder barring for those with tattoos. Yeah, which, yeah, I always I thought that was a bit strange. So, bro, what's um? So when you were in New Zealand, you left it when you were. Oh, so you left when you were twelve or thirteen. You said. Yeah, it's twelve. I probably twelve. I think I turned twelve the first summer I was in the United States. Probably any particular reason? Any particular reason you went over with your mum as opposed to staying in New Zealand with your dad? Uh, I don't think staying with him was really an option. You know, I was kind of going with going with mum was really the only the only place we were going. Yeah, do you want to delve into that a bit, or is that just a particular thing in your family that you don't want to probably go into? I uh, yeah, I made my dad left when I was a kid, and um, didn't really talk to him again until I was an adult. Yeah, I had on and off conversation. I don't think I saw him from when I was that when I was leaving New Zealand till. Man, I was in the army, so I was at least in my early twenties. Jesus, man. Yeah, and the reason I ask is because I remember I've I've seen on your, on your um, Instagram profile there's a you've got a photo with you and your dad for I think it was for Father's Day. So um, yeah, we um, so I did go back home for a few years uh, before before in the before times before the pan before COVID, and that has so I haven't been back since, but I went back a few years in a row. So we, um, I think that picture there, we, he was in the States. So I, um, went and visited him while he was here. So we've like reestablished, um, a relationship now as an adult, but not when I was a, not when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, that's hectic, man. So what was the cultural, like as a 12, 13 year old, 11, 12, 13, what was the cultural shift like from New Zealand going to the I've U.S.? Been- with my mom's family here, I'd been to the States a few times. Um, and uh, I've, one of the things I remember, two of the things, three, three things. It was really food related. It was the cereal aisle in an American grocery store. I don't know what it was like in Australia, but you know, back when I was a kid in New Zealand, it was like you, you ate wheat bix or uh, they did have uh, Fruit Loops, but there wasn't, you know, there's like six different cereals, I think, I remember. And then going here where, there's like two full aisles of all, it's all kind of the same stuff, but I've never seen so much box sugar, uh, root beer. I'd never had root beer before. So I'd get root beer wasted and then, uh, fake cheese, just like the processed, like single wrapped cheese. I'd never had that in 
New Zealand either. So. We've got that here in Australia. I thought it would have been the same New Zealand. Like you would have had a lot of those imports. Or is it pretty fresh? I don't. I mean, sure they do. I think they do now. I don't know if at the time. I don't know because I was a kid. If I just never, never saw it or or had it, but I just never ate it until I moved to the United States. So I associate moving to America with fake cheese slices as well. Yeah. And what about um? What about school? So you, did you go straight into school, or was there like a break where you sort of adjusting? I moved here over the summer, so there was like the you know summer break in the U.S., which was different from New Zealand too, with year-round school. Um, yeah, so I was hung out for like the three months of the summer, and then started sixth grade. Yeah, started sixth grade in the United States. Um, I remember in New Zealand. Kids didn't talk as much shit to each other, at least because you would, you know, you played rugby at lunch or you'd get in, like, you'd get in honorable fisticuffs. Um, so that was one of the big differences I noticed school here. Like, kids were bullies and, like, you would, um, wouldn't often, like, find each other. It was just like, they were all 13 year olds that are going to be horrible to one another for the next three years. And no one really, uh, weren't often any fights about it. Did you try and punch on with any kids when they gave you shit? I got in a few fights, yeah. And I remember because that was one of the moments where uh, the the vice principal or something like said, hey, you know, you can't hit him. You have to come you have to tell a teacher. Like, I don't know why I have to tell a teacher. I can just, um, you know, I can just hit him. Like, well, you know, if you want him to stop saying that, you can tell, tell a teacher. I'm like, well, also, if you want him to stop saying that, you can punch him in the mouth. And they probably won't say yeah. it. That's my impression of New Zealand. That it's like a pretty rough and tumble sort of place, right? And I don't know if that stems from like that Maori warrior culture thing. Am I right in sort of assuming that? Because I, I mean, it wasn't. Uh, I remember everyone went to school barefoot often. We all had school uniforms. I don't know if that's like that in Australia. Even public schools in New Zealand, you know, school uniform. Um. And then you play rugby at lunch barefoot. And rugby was kind of like, so I remember when I was a kid, so I wanted to play soccer. My dad at the time was like, no, you're not playing, you're not playing soccer. You're, you know, you're playing rugby. So I mean, there's lots of rugby, barefoot. So yeah, it's as much as I think the start contrast in schooling was just the, Kind of, we'd, yeah, we'd play rugby at lunch here. There wasn't a lot of that. There wasn't any rugby moving here. So actually my mom, um, put me in basketball, which I did like and play in New Zealand too. Um, but I remember I, um, I fouled out of almost every game in basketball. Like you, I don't know, you get four or five fouls. Um, I remember the coach using me strategically like an enforcer in hockey, <clears throat> you know, like, cause I was just tall. I was lanky. I was tall and I would, I was used to playing rugby, so I'd get every rebound. I'd win every center court toss-up. And then when I think one of the good players would kind of get smashed or something by a dude on another team, they'd just kind of put me in the foul and I'd go back to the bench afterwards. <laughs> so, You're like, hey, when you go do that New Zealand shit out there, you boots. Yeah, go, uh, that guy. Like, okay, put me in, coach. So, um... You're early, so what's sixth grade? Is that still elementary school, primary school? It's called uh, middle school or junior high, depending on which state you're in. But it's uh, 
because I think it would have been like form five. I don't know if they still call them forms over in New Zealand or if they do that in Australia, but it was, yeah, form five, form six. Yeah. The and then 13 ish. Probably your early years of high school would have been September 11, right? Yeah, I think I think I was. I have to do the math, but I was, yeah, I was a freshman or sophomore, so my first or second year of high school was in nine eleven. Yeah, what was that like being in the states? I was in, I was in Washington State, and that's where I've spent most of my life. Making yeah. the turn of the TV, and I think the first plane had hit the tower. So we're three hours behind and on the other side, completely other side of the country. <clears throat> I think the thing is watching the news before going to school on a second plane at the, the second tower. Understand this is a 15. Because I think at first, you know, people thought it was an accident. And then the second one, I think there's a sermon. At least perceiving a certain amount of disbelief from the adults around me. I think we still, we still went to school and then um, I think we all got sent home later that day or earlier, early that day. Yeah. But obviously, yeah, as a 15 year old, you don't grasp the full gravity of the situation, right? Because I was about the same age yeah. and I was just like, you know, we were like semi joking about it because we didn't understand what it, what it all meant. We thought it was just, you know, another thing on the news. Yeah. yeah. What about, um, <laughs> we went into this last time. Tell me about a stupid pickleball game that they got over there. Pickleball, man, it's a, a game of gentlemen and scholars. It's uh, I, I didn't know what pickleball was until I went to community college briefly, a brief stint. Um, and it's like it's like a, a hybrid of tennis and ping pong ball, kind of. I think that's the best way to describe it because it's like tennis. It's a tennis-sized court almost with a low net and then paddles that are more similar to a, a um, ping pong ball paddle, like a wooden paddle. And I needed uh, an elective, I think, for my associate's degree. So I, I took pickleball and got college credit for running around for, I think, half an hour playing oversized ping pong ball. It was a good time, though. And if there were any courts where we were, would have given it a go. It sounds like racquetball or something. Well, because racquetball, that's the one in the room, right? Like squash racquetball. Uh, yeah, up against the wall. Yeah, it's not. It's a little bit different than that because it's more like tennis on an open court. And then I think... I think the pickleball itself has holes in it. Maybe. Yeah. It's more like a wiffle ball kind of thing. I don't know what the bounce <laughs> sure. is. I don't remember that. I don't remember that. that I haven't played it in a long time. But I always thought it was entertaining that I, uh, you know, my in my higher pursuit of higher learning, I got credit for taking pickleball as a elective athletic class. Yeah, because the sports stuff's massive over there, right? Like the, the college football and the uh, – I don't know what the divisions are in basketball, but like the one that feeds into the major league or A league oh, or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, all the those sports are all pretty huge here. Now they have, because I've never really been, uh, like, I'm not a big football fan or watcher, just because I, I don't like rugby league. I always played rugby union, so having the ball stop in between each play has always seemed real boring. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Because like, that's kind of New Zealand growing up. It was like everyone, it was rugby, really. Like, that was a sport, unless my sisters played, you know, field hockey and netball. Um but here, yeah, it's tons, tons, and tons of sports stuff. Yeah, and if you hate rugby league, you must fucking hate NFL. Yeah, it just isn't. Uh, I mean, I'll watch the Super Bowl and do that kind of. It's almost like a, a holiday tradition type thing. But yeah, I don't. Uh, not a big. I'm not going to sit down and watch a game of football or pay to go to one. You know. Yeah, because we we went to one on that last trip. Um, it was like the Colts versus the Colts versus the Rams, and like the spectacle of the game was unreal. It was, and that was just like a regular game here. That would be like the biggest thing in the world. That was epic, man. The flags and music and the, the all the, the oh, yeah. entertainment and stuff. So I imagine yeah, I mean, like, not... <laughs> yeah, I, I would probably only do like a a Super Bowl sort of thing because fuck, man, the game itself. I was like. What the fuck are they doing? Why are they stopping now? What the, I didn't even yeah. see where the ball was. It's like watching hockey. I'm like, where's the puck? It's moving too fast. <laughs> so did you have a dog at that time as well? Like a pet dog or anything? I did. I had a dog. That was my first dog. Uh, his name was Darby. And he was a, a boxer lad mix. Um, and he was like, I think if I remember right, he was a puppy that no one wanted to buy from the local pet store. So he had been there for like four or five months or something like that. Um, I think my mom knew I'd always, I'd wanted a dog and this, he had become, you know, like, uh, he was a discounted dog at this point because he was the, he was the puppy that no one bought when they were puppies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had him, his name, named him Darby. I thought he was the greatest dog in the world. You know, you know, you look at your dog, you're like, man, that's an awesome dog. I'm finding pictures of dog. It's an ugly, ugly. It looked like a lamb. Someone hit in the face with a shovel. Uh, he was a good-looking dog when he was mad. As a kid, I'd take that beach, all that stuff. Yeah, was that a big influence for you getting going to the military as an animal care specialist? Or- it was just like, it's just a dog, pet dog. I love dogs, and it's about as far as it goes. I think I did like that. That uh, having him as a kid, that like I was really hung out with him after school. Uh, I mean, I had friends. I was a weird kid for sure. Um, but yeah, having him, he was kind of like go down to the beach, always take Darby. Go down to the corner store, always take take. I think I took him off leash a lot too. Um, I'm not sure I've ever even trained that dog, really, but he's a good dog. What I remember, I'm sure it played a role in how much I like dogs, but one of the reasons I joined as an animal care specialist was my grandfather, who was in the U.S. Army for like 21 years and being in Korea. Yeah. Is that the photos on your Instagram? There's a photo of a dude in uniform. Looks strikingly like you. Yeah, it's probably him. He's, yeah, I mean, he was—he's taller than me, you know, like six foot six, six foot seven. But um, yeah, he was uh, twenty-one years in the army. He was in artillery, 
Uh, volunteered with North Korea and Vietnam, I think twice each. They never really talked about the war, either war much. Uh, the only story he would really tell me growing up was his cousin and uncle. So it was another multi that was in Vietnam as a dog He had a dog named King. He would tell the story of how he was driving to this other camp to find another Sergeant Multi. And, you know, a guy was holding his own and bleeding and said, you know, Sergeant Multi is good as fucking dog. He just bit me. So I had an industry scout dog in Vietnam. I think he was a, a shepherd. And then I think, because of that unfortunate story of Vietnam, the majority, the vast majority of the dogs behind there. Uh, either the king was killed or he didn't make it back. Um, so cousin, uncle, or other family member, relative that was in Vietnam, was a handler. He, uh, he just, he ended up drawing, ending drawings of you know, the dogs in Vietnam. So I found out that part later, but, you know, that was really the only story I grew up. You know, as a kid, you want to hear your granddad tell stories of the war, but also not really knowing, knowing the difference of, People don't want to tell their stories of the war, but that was one that he, I remember him sharing growing up. Pretty much just that one. Yeah. Okay. Well, when did he pass away? June, 2020. He, uh, luckily he didn't die of COVID, but had been in congestive heart failure. And then that, uh, that's when he died in June, June 8th, 2020. Yeah. Did that have a big impact on you? Were you guys close? Yeah, I think um, uh, he he couldn't see or hear very well. He been had hearing aids for a while. He's pretty deaf, and I uh, I have hearing aids too from my um, and so a lot towards the end of his life, it was really us just kind of like yelling at each other. It's kind of hard to <laughs> you know like I didn't he couldn't hear me, so I'm screaming at him, and uh, but we were uh, we were definitely close. Him and uh, Uncle are probably the two. Kind of Influences their role models and agreement. Mm-hmm. So it was it was tough, especially because COVID happened during that time, and I was still active duty. So I was still going uh, to work every day. So it was kind of in a. I had been vaccinated, I think. No, no, I wasn't vaccinated. Um, just so I was kind of certainly controlled, but I was exposed to other people all the time. So when he was in a hospice center, so I. I wasn't I didn't go see him before he passed because of the whole kind of keeping keeping things quarantined and limiting access. Yeah, fuck, that would have sucked, man. I I know that was a, a real sore point for a lot of people, not being able to go to funerals, see relatives in the hospital, crossing borders, that type of stuff. Yeah, um, I did get to talk to him on the phone. We actually had like a real solid, like I said, because we hadn't always we couldn't always hear well. Especially talking on the phone, I can't always hear well. Talking to people on the phone, um, so yeah, we had I think we had like a thirty, forty-five minute conversation that was perfectly um, clear and coherent. And so that was the last time. So I did get to talk to him, but yeah, I just didn't get to go visit. Yeah, that's good, man. Mate, at least you got to have that good conversation with him, eh? Like a nice, nice clear yeah. one, and yeah, no, oh, cool, man. It's interesting. But bro, that's that's the bet. Your um, is uncle or great uncle? Uh, the one I th- for the handler in Vietnam. Yeah, 
I think I can't remember exactly. He's either a cousin or a cousin. Or, yeah, I think he's a cousin. I think like so. Yeah. I forgot explanation because I think he died uh, earlier on in my life. Yeah. Because that Vietnam stuff that like the, with the dogs was brutal, right? Like they fucking left them all there, and some of them probably got yeah taken and you know whatever. So yeah. And then I know a lot of people were drawing parallels between that and um, Afghanistan when they you know they withdrew out of Kabul and there was those photos of the, all the dogs in the kennels or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Brutal man. I. Yeah, I think because that was a uh, contract. Like a contract company uh, yeah. left their dogs there, and uh, so at least the good news was that the U.S. military didn't leave any dogs behind this time, as opposed to Vietnam. But still, the DoD employee like had contracts with working dog kennels overseas that would work the ECPs, and obviously they didn't take the time or make sure to stipulate those dogs were evacuated as well. The fuck, I can't feel like. No. All the time, even if you're not like quite a dog person, all that time you spend with that dog, you know, on your deployment or whatever your rotation is, surely you've got to have some attachment to the dog and then want to get the fucking thing out of there, right? It just boggles my mind, man. You would think, but I don't know. That was, I'm not saying this is always the case, but I just had a weird experience overseas because I would help treat some of the contract dogs over there. Um, and so there was this one contract handler who had, I forgot his dog's name, it was this big Dutch Shepherd. I don't know what it is about big Dutch shepherds just looks like to bite their handlers. Um, but yeah, there's a South African dude that I don't think he liked his dog at all. And his dog didn't like him. And so every, he'd been bitten, I don't know how many, I think six times on that trip. So the guy's arms are just destroyed. And so he's, yeah, he's just uh, trying to work this dog. that's just eating him up. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed the same thing about Dutchies, right? They seem to come up the lead for some reason. I've seen it a heap of times. Yeah, this dog did not like his handler at all. I'm not sure. <laughs> I think I watched him get bit one time. Came into the vet. I was like, oh, you gotta, you got to muzzle him, dude. I was like, oh, I can't get a muzzle on him. I'm, like, I'm not putting my face down there unless you do. And then I got bit again in the hand trying to put the muzzle on him. He's like, number seven. Oh. All right. Well, then that's a perfect segue. Talk us through joining the army, and then why did you join as an animal care specialist? Um, so I didn't join. You know, like I, I watched nine eleven happen, but I didn't join right after high school. It was two years, like two years after I joined. I was twenty, and I uh, kind of struck out on my own at seventeen. Before that, and I worked a bunch of odd jobs in structural steel factory. Um. I was a dirty punk rock kid. So I was, went to work at like 3 a.m. It was structural steel. I think I was in the uh, break room looking at all of these like old salty workers around, you know, just sneezing black soot and flash burned eyes. Just having a weird moment. I was like, I don't want to do this is when I'm 64 years old. So for whatever reason, kind of looking at my options. Decided to join the military, and I had a friend, a close friend, still a close friend at the time, who was joining as well. So we just went down, and started going on the recruiter together. I think trying to join the Marines first. I think he tried to join the Navy first, and we both ended up joining the Army. 
What did you join as? Did you have like an MOS? Yeah, he ended up being a, a linguist, um, and I, uh, I chose I chose care specialist. That was wanted to wanted to work with military because you know very defensive story my grandmother told me. So I think I went in there. I was like, you know, I, I don't know that I did any research. I was like, oh, I'd like to be, you know, an infantry scout dog handler, which doesn't exist anymore. They stopped using those in Vietnam. <laughs> and he's like, well, that's yeah. not. You can't just join to be a dog handler. He's like, but you can join to be an MP. Uh, and then after a couple of years, apply to be a dog handler. And again, I didn't know much about the army outside of a couple of my granddad's stories, but I knew from watching military movies that no one seems to like military police officers you know the mps always show up to ruin a good time no offense to my all of my MP friends now but uh see so yeah, i was like no i don't want to be an mp like i don't want to be an mp with the off chance of becoming a dog what else have you got for the dogs You're a specialist and what what's the like what's the the mandate so to speak like what does an animal care specialist do in the u.s army I basically, you know, you go to a veterinary hospital and there's the veterinarians and veterinary technicians. So it's more or less the same thing. Uh, there's a variety of career paths in the Army versus just there's our clinic, Army veterinary hospitals that are there support working down teams. And then there's field units. They, um, and then eventually there was the special operations positions, which where I ended up spending the majority of my career. <laughs> You can kind of go a, a few different different ways, and I, I was really lucky that for my 14-year career, I think I spent 12 years with the working dogs. A lot of people can end up, you know, in clinics or field field units or um, in some other positions where you're not necessarily working directly with the uh, with the working dogs. But I, yeah, I'm like 10 years, about 10 years, I have to work directly. You know, being assigned to dog kennels, not hospitals. Yeah, because it's a pretty broad field, right? You're not just, like you said, it's not just working with dogs. Like I know there's, like last time on the podcast, you sent me a bunch of photos of like you working with like dolphins and <laughs> monkeys and gibbons yeah. and shit, <laughs> whatever it was. Luckily, luckily, I did not have to work with any monkeys because they terrify <laughs> me. Um, but they have, they like, they have the caisson platoon, so they have the, the horses still, like they'll have the ceremonial horses, so they have army veterinary personnel to take care of those horses. They have... Um, like, cause I did, I got to go to SeaWorld and help out there for a stage things where I was kissing a whale. Yeah. That's one of my, a whale. One of my, yeah. One of my buddies made a bet. He was like, I bet you, you can't, um, or he said, uh, I don't know what, what ended up being the bet is that I will kiss a marine mammal today and you will buy me dinner if I pull it off. <clears throat> oh, when the. We're getting the tour of the woman trainer of the way. I think because they're showing animal husbandry, they're showing the training, and then even um, their their veterinary staff. These lady standards and stuff. And so I, I was like, "This is talking scene." Beluga whale training. Just raised my hand. I was like, "Hey, if you let me kiss your whale, he has to buy me dinner tonight." And she's like, "Yeah, you can, you can do that." <laughs> Yeah, sealed oh, the it. Whales. Yeah, so, yeah, I got to do a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, nice. 
So talk talk me through when you went to your first unit that was working directly with dogs. That ended up being in Virginia Beach. Um because initially I went to a uh, field unit to a medical brigade where they had a combat support hospital. Um, And the unit was gone or leaving. So I was left behind. And then I got called into the brigade sergeant's major office uh, because he didn't know what an animal care specialist was like. And uh, it's as similar as like to a, he's like, what's it, you know, what do you do? And I remember, because I told the story before, but he, um, you know, I'm a private in the army and he's asking me what I do. And I don't really know how to answer that question. Cause I honestly don't know what I do. I just got here. I remember calling him, uh, I like take care of military working dogs. Cause that was my frame of reference. And he said, I don't have any dogs in my brigade. And he was short on medics. So they, just, they sent me to, um, EMT school and stuff on Fort Lewis and a bunch of other kind of auxiliary training. And I just got assigned. Uh, and you use utilizes them as a medic medical support for human soldiers for less than two years, but kind of the first two years did a bunch of big training exercises. They had uh these on Fort Lewis they used to have Warrior Forge or LDAC. So it's where all the ROTC, like like the college kids that are becoming army officers, they would have to go to kind of like their boot camp, which was held at Fort Lewis at the time. And so I was me and another another medic were assigned to a four-liter am- ambulance, an FLA, which is just like a ambu- Humvee ambulance. And um, we supported fire missions for the artillery battery that would shoot. Um, and we did, you, we got U.S. weapons for the uh, firing range. Like they had to go to all these stations. So the one I got put on first was U.S. weapons, where they were learning how to shoot cruiser weapons, like <clears throat> the saw, 249, 240 kind of seeing all the dumb stuff. I mean, they're college kids that are about to be lieutenants, but just really <clears throat> not the, not the smartest. It's concerning. It's concerning. I think I, I had like field promoted to an E4 at that point, right? And like a expedited promotion. So, I mean, yeah, still not, not like I know what I'm doing, but just being a specialist in the army, like a 21, 22 year old specialist and seeing well, like the 24 year olds that are going to be put in charge of the company or put in charge of us here shortly as they're learning to shoot machine guns. Yeah. It's uh it's funny like that, eh? Like you look back now as a thirty something year old and you're like, oh man, how how can a twenty something year old even be capable of that? Yeah. Yeah, especially um I don't know if I told the the cough drop story the last time we were on here. I don't know. Tell tell it again. Have I told you, have you ever told you the cough top story so really all say, I, had to do on these, I had a couple there were a couple like minor injuries but other than that we really just handed out moleskin which is for their blisters and then flu packs because they're all flying in from all over the country so it's just like going to enlisted boot camp everyone's getting sick in close quarters and the flu packs are you know ibuprofen or motrin and um cough drops but on the container said they were like government issued cough drops it said cough menthol lozenges um the the ncyc the non-commissioned officer in charge of that weapons range she thought medics were lazy because you know we honestly don't have to do anything unless something bad happens we're just sitting there so you wanted to make sure we were wearing all our stuff you wanted to make sure we didn't take naps we weren't allowed to do any of this stuff and so i ended up what i would do is i'd 
I'd put the C collar on. I'd sit there in the passenger side of the Humvee, put the C collar on to hold my chin up, and then I'd put my sunglasses on and pull like my uniform thing up. And I had the plate carrier on, so you couldn't see it. So it looked like I was sitting there paying attention, but I'd just be, I'd just be sleeping. And I think that's important for context. So when <laughs> these cadets come, these cadets are approaching. Like they may tell me, like, "Hey, go to the medic or something," and they'd come to our up to our home, our FLA. For context, as this kid knocked on the passenger window of our FLA, I, I have a a, seek, a neck brace on. So I roll down the window and you know turn my whole body to like, which we, were supposed to, we couldn't we couldn't call them cadets. We had to call them warriors. So I remember, I said, "What do you want, warrior?" I said, "Oh, I um, I'm looking for some uh, cough drops." You know, you need cough drops. I'm like, sorry, I don't have any cough drops. I just have cough lozenges. And so she said, oh, never mind. And started walking away. What the fuck? I said, wait wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why don't you want any cough lozenges? Like, why don't you want any cough lozenges? Because I don't know what those are. So uh, being the kind of person I was, probably still am, uh, I took the opportunity. I was like, oh, well, um, cough lozenge is just like a cough drop, but it's an anal suppository. You know, you boof it. You did and, not uh, tell the like, story last time. <laughs> I thought, so, <laughs> and so uh, he was like, oh, dude, I'm not doing that. I'm like, oh, hear me out. There's a lot more capillaries down there, a greater surface area. You're going to have, you know, a faster, it's a faster rate of administration and absorption. Um, so, you know, you just pull one of these up your prison pocket. You won't cough. You won't cough for a day. Guaranteed. <laughs> And I thought there's no way, like someone at some point is going to tell this kid, like, no, dude, that's just a cough drop. You don't, <clears throat> you don't put that there. And also I keep in mind, I'm, I'm maybe two years younger than him. I've got a neck brace on sitting in a Humvee, like, yeah, here's, this is, here's your cough lozenges. <clears throat> Good luck. And I didn't think of it. Like, I honestly didn't think of it again. Like there's, and I remember the next morning, the Lieutenant Colonel came down and was like, what? fucking medic told one of my cadets to shove a cough drop up his ass <laughs> because um they were menthol cough drops so as he as he uh used that cough drop much like a dog thermometer <clears throat> it started to burn and he uh i didn't he ended up being casavacked um or evacuated in a van to the army medical center to have the burning cough lozenge removed. Jesus. Which I don't know, man. Like that took that took courage to have to like you're going to your friends and be like, okay, hey, I think I fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> so of course. But when they're like, why did you do why did you do this? I go, oh, well the medic gave me this told me to do it. So I probably uh should have gotten in a lot more trouble for that than I did. Um and yeah, that's when Let's go. that guy was going to be a lieutenant. That's where he ended. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. That's a fucking good story, bro. You definitely did not tell that story last time. <laughs> no, he thinks of every time he goes by the cough drop aisle at a grocery <laughs> store now, though. Oops, button camera. Oh, fucking hell. Obviously, that guy would have been graduated, gone on to be a lieutenant, captain, whatever. Yeah. Jesus. I was always waiting. Some like later in my career, I was always somewhat waiting for a major. You know, to, uh, he if it was you, 
you run it again. Right. Yeah, like major ass burn. Yeah. Yeah, funny man. All right, bro. So, um, talk me through when you started working directly with the dogs. So you've gone out of you're in that sort of generic hospital kind of unit. When did you move into like a kennel? Which unit was that? Because from memory, it was eighty second able. Oh no, I was never. I was a paratrooper one later on, but I called. So I've been there. I started going over to the hospital and actually getting to work with the working dogs. Asked my sergeant at the time. He was a great dude. So he just let me go over to the working dog hospital from you know being a field unit, you know, a ground, a ground ambulance company doing support to going again to work with the dogs. And um, I really, I really like the dogs. I Man, like working with the dog team is being the guys. But it's kind of, and it came full circle, you know, and work with some of the first special forces group dog handlers back in 2009, well before I ended up getting assignments. And so getting the opportunity to actually work with the dogs, because I didn't, um, it was, you know, the, everyone has expectations for the army, and they're largely based on movies and stuff. I mean, it's really not. So, I, you know, I spent the majority of my life kind of support phase just sitting around in a Humvee or a there wasn't a lot wasn't wasn't as exciting as I expected it to be. Um, so I ended up getting that spirits with working dogs and calling uh I forgot the name of them earlier. Our HR representative every MOS has someone that helps do your assignments. So I just called her and, and said time said I'd like to assignments were available and volunteer for one. That was a lot of working working missions. So I got sent to Virginia. Um, I guess I started working with Naval Special Warfare there. We had the IDD dogs, which was a Marine program briefly from the mid 2000s to probably around 2013 ish. Uh, so I ended up getting a lot of experience there where it was, I think we had, you know, at least eight, nine hundred working dogs in myself. One point, just myself and a captain of an officer would do multiple support for. Um, so, yeah, that's why I got to really start working more directly with the dogs. It was with the Navy, too, because the Army, the U.S. military, the Army's only branch that has been in the medical support, which uses the dogs. So, starting a career with the Army, then went to and worked with the Navy, then the Air Force, and then back to the Army. So that assignment at, at um, Virginia Beach, was that damn Nick? Is that uh, the dev course? No, no I, I got to meet their veterinarian and my counterpart there at the time and some of the, some of the guys over there then because they would, when they, if they needed extra, extra help, they would ask me to come over and I'd help just doing stuff with their dogs. It was the other, I worked with the other, so the Near Special Warfare Group too, and some of their first handlers like Mitch Myers, who's, you know him, but uh, he, had, he had Barry, sure. so and Joshua Morton, some of these other guys that were some of the first uh, Navy SEAL handlers outside of the over in Danville. Yeah. Okay. And I would go, that's when I started actually going to the kennel with uh, 
to some of the special operations came in conferences where I've kind of shifted. You know, at first I wanted to join the army, ended up doing a lot of human support, kind of got the experience that I did with the dogs, decided I really wanted to work with those dogs. And with the opportunities that I got helping out with the NSW dogs, then that kind of shaped more of where, as they were assigning veterinary medical personnel to special operations dog kennels, that's when I decided I was going to try to go go for one of those jobs. Is that, was that just an application process? They were just like, all right, looks like we're starting up this program. Put your fucking yeah, bits in the air was, if you want to do it. There was, um, there was an application process. I ended up going, uh, I ended up working independently of a veterinarian a lot as well. It was another kind of unique thing of my career was I had over me, but sometimes, you know, we would be co-located. So between then, I went on, uh, I deployed, um, and supported the head dog programs. And as another, there was a variety of working dog programs that were not traditional that were created and sustained during the war on terror. that have since kind of wound down and been uh, no longer used. But so the, the Marines had the infantry detector dogs, which kind of they'd give these largely Labradors that would work off leash to Marine riflemen who would then take that dog and kind of lead his platoon using the dog off leash to detect explosive devices. And the Army had a similar program called the TED program, the Tactical Explosive Detector Dog Program, where they would give. There's a great variety in the breeds of those dogs. There are some labs or also shepherds and animals. But they were single-purpose off-leash detection, and they'd give them to a cavalry scout or an infantryman. Um, or there was, there was one IT guy that we had as well that applied for the, the TED CAN position and got it. So I did a deployment with a 3rd Infantry Division uh, TED detachment and um, got asked or offered at least the preliminary. I got an email saying I'd been selected based on a variety of uh, kind of on paper and recommendation things for the new special operations. One of the new ones anyway, because some had been around. And then... Um, I was in the middle of leaving Afghanistan. So I remember I replied to the email and said, I'll get this information to you as soon as I get home. But I ended up forgetting, forgetting to do it while I was on leave. Um, and then I got a second email. I think it was like, congratulations. If you've received this email, you've been past the initial screening for, you know, a, a job at the Special Forces Group. And it's like, oh shit. So I emailed them back then. I must've got this on accident. The application and totally forgot. I said, oh, you, uh, I was recommended. So they said, just get me and you'll stay in the kind of candidate list. So I was lucky. Yeah. Um, nice. Yeah. And then there was kind of a, just like a direct support selection process. It wasn't, you know, nothing, uh, nothing they're going to make a movie about. And um, I passed all that stuff and then they offered, yeah, they offered the job. So I went from career kind of was Fort Lewis, the Army first, then Virginia Beach, working with Navy handlers, and NSW is where I got kind of first exposure um, and working with special operations dog teams. Then I got sent to the Air Force Base um, in the middle of fucking nowhere, North Dakota, but that was where I worked. I really did, was not looking forward to when I got reassigned there. I was supposed to, um, I was supposed to go work with uh, MARSOC at the time. But the, after a long kind of drawn out battle, my, the person giving me my assignments, 
they didn't want to send me down to Camp Lejeune. So I, I thought for sure she'd find me some crappy assignment. Uh, Cause she ended up kind of getting the long story, but I was like, sure, she's going to give me a really shitty assignment next. And she did, but it ended up working out. It was uh, like North Dakota, um, Grand Forks, North Dakota, a small air force base actually had a decent number of dogs. And, uh, but it gets down to like negative 60 degrees Fahrenheit with wind chill there. It's ridiculous. It's just miserable. Uh, and there's nothing around your um, Canadians come down to Grand Forks to shop at Target on the weekends. I mean, it's that far, it's that far north. Yeah. Um, I ended up working out because I'd been on the voluntary deployment list for years, but because of the number of dogs who supported until then, every time I knew pulled from the tent uh, hey, you can be uh, your next in line on the medical personnel voluntary list deployed. I was considered mission critical to the current assignment. Like they couldn't lose me with the dogs who were supporting the garrison. But when they sent me to Dakota and then I pulled up again, there was really uh, no reason I couldn't deploy with that. It wasn't mission critical in garrison. Yeah, I guess that was, yeah, like you said, kind of lucky. Mate, let's dial back a bit. You sort of skimmed over your Afghanistan deployment. So like I thought it was the 82nd Airborne for some reason, but it was 3rd Infantry, Infantry Division, which is massive, massive, right? Yes. I mean, it's one of the large, uh, it was 4th Brigade Combat Teams, one of the, the Brigade Combat Teams under, uh, you know, one of the most, I think most of the Infantry Divisions are pretty well, well known from uh, World War Two. I mean, I think third ID was around before then. I did have to learn about unit history. Um, when I got my third ID deployment patch, combat patch, the sergeant major of the brigade combat team made me sing uh, the dog face soldier song. So I had to learn that as well. Um, and I was What's that, with, What's that going on? Oh, you want me to sing it? I actually don't remember it. Um, <laughs> Bullshit. Send you, I'll send you a link on Spotify of the, the third infantry to begin song. Yeah, right. And there was 10 handlers? I believe there was 10, 10 handlers I deployed with in uh, RC East. We were at Fox Shank. And they worked in, working in Logar and Ward. Is that north, south? Where's that? East. It's kind of southeast. It's uh, pretty sure Logar or Wardak. Uh, Shank ended up getting, I think, largely turned over back to the Afghans and became Camp Dalkey, stayed open later on in the war the next time I was back there. But it's, uh, it's yeah, in the okay. east, south south of Kabul. I want to say maybe an hour and a half south of Kabul. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, and what was the mission? Oh, sorry, what year was this? 2013. 2013. And what was the, the what was the mission at that time? Now, there were still, I think that might have been one of the last years of kind of large-scale combat operations for the Army, at least, where they would have uh, platoons of infantrymen or engineers go do presence patrols, route clearance. So the handlers would rotate. They'd work on a rotational basis, but they, they probably had at least one or two dogs going out with platoons on a on a daily, weekly basis. And so um, I lived, I lived and slept with the dog handlers. It was uh, part of the, the operating base called Camp Hellhound. It was the dog kennel. Um, we got, we kind of, 
the government lying sites, different camps and support units that were there. But the way it kind of worked was they had the TED detachment for the brigade combat team. And certain handlers got kind of assigned to different <clears throat> battalions or companies. And so if they were, if they wanted a dog, they just put that in their mission plan and would call down to the kennel and say, yeah, you know, like, so Swain and Rudy are going out tomorrow on a key leader engagement, present patrol, whatever, their assault mission, whatever it happened to be. And they would, they would just go out there, obviously, and do their explosive detection. Yeah, awesome. And you said there were infantry guys that had dogs. Is that what it, what it was? Yeah, they weren't traditional military dog handlers, at least at the time, especially at the time for the Army. They weren't MPs that had gone to canine school. They were um, yeah, the infantrymen and cavalry scouts, by and large, that had applied for this TED program. And really the idea behind it was a contract company trained and maintained the dogs. The Army basically just kind of rented them for the duration of their employment. Which ended up not being a great uh, policy or idea. And so these infantrymen would do kind of their pre mission training or their train up. They'd go to a, a really kind of short handler course. So it might be like, I, I want to say maybe a month, like a four week long handler course. They'd be given their dog. And this dog is kind of, you know, the idea is it's supposed to be a push button dog that anybody can pick this dog up and show them properly how to like direct it and reward it. The dog's going to find explosives. Sure. Um, obviously, this program had successes and failures because not every yeah, not everybody probably should have handled the dog. Not every dog that the vendor supplier was really what they were supposed to be. But I do know the guys I worked with, almost all of them, the vast majority, I mean, ninety percent, ended up being really effective working dog teams. I think the, the TED dogs that I deployed with and supported, they had at least, I honestly, I forget the number, so I shouldn't make one up. But I know that they had so many IED fines or denied, um, so many devices that at certain points, as they like fired rockets and mortars into our, our compounds and stuff, they started trying to hit the dog kennel because they knew that the, where we, they ended up knowing where the dog kennel was because we had signs outside the kennel and and Dari, they said caution military working dog kennel. And they could see that from a hillside right outside the fob. Because I remember that we'd get, you know, we'd get rocketed and mortared almost every day. And one time the battle captain called up to the kennel. Um, and I answered the phone and he was just notifying us as they do their kind of point of impact, point of origin data for incoming or indirect fire. Like, you know, like you're getting, they're getting bracketed. Indirect fire, which it appears because of the number of IDs and intelli like S2 intelligence and the bracketing that um, they're noticing the amount of IDs that the dogs in this province continue to find. Yeah, they're crafty little fuckers, eh? Yeah, because I remember they would, um, you know, they'd walk this camel up on this hillside and they'd be peering in with, with binoculars and everybody knew what they were doing, but they don't have any weapons or anything, so you can't. Um, can't do anything. I think we used to, at one point we had some golf clubs and golf balls. We just used to golf balls in their direction, trying to get them off the hill from there. The forward observing. Yeah. We, we had kind of a similar thing in my base. We were, um, right up against this hill and they could just like walk behind the hill. It was almost like they just had total freedom of movement. 
which I guess they did outside the base. It wasn't not all the bases I don't think strategically placed. Some of them, you know, you're just, you're just kind of in this bowl and they're on these hillsides just looking directly down into everything that's going on in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, like that, uh, there's that movie that came out a couple of years ago. It was about that guy that got the Medal of Honor and uh, where they like took over the base and they took the base back. Like that was yeah. like that, wasn't it? It was just a big fucking channel into the base, like a like a bullet and rocket magnet. Yeah, strange. All right. So, what was the tempo like then? Was it like was it a lot of direct contact with the enemy? Was it a lot of indirect stuff like the rocket attacks and the IEDs? For me, it's primarily indirect fire. So it's to soft and travel But with a lot of the presence patrols, there's still a lot of direct contact or troops in contact occurring at the time with those platoons going out. Um, honestly, it had been a busy, but kind of uneventful. It was my first deployment too, right? So you don't have uh, I think sometimes your first deployment is the hardest one. It gets easier after that. But uh, not having kind of those expectations and had not knowing even kind of the difference between the fighting season. And so, like, nothing really terrible was happening. So we got two or three months into this deployment with um, dogs going out, but I was kind of... And then I've seen, like, all at once, uh, beginning in July and then August, that, you know, dogs were being injured and killed, kind of left, what felt like left and right. Um, and so I think out of... Yeah, out of all out of my trips and um, going overseas and training and stuff, we lost the most dogs during that deployment. Yeah. And um, I know there was a couple of dogs that um, had a bit of an impact on you, on you when it came to the treatment. Can you just talk us through, like, what was happening, that the, the type of injuries and, and the like your involvement, the treatment, that type of stuff? So the top three uh, mechanisms of injury that causes death from working dogs, just from the data collected until 2013, was um, gunshot wound and explosion. I never personally saw a dog survive an explosion, and then heat injury. So heat injury was on there too. And I would say that's pretty consistent with the uh, dogs I saw, how they were injured, and what what killed them. Um, had at least one of each. And, um, I would primarily get the dogs. I received them at the Ford, the Ford surgical team or down at the, down at the flight line. Yeah. And then what, what did the, the treatment consist of? Because I know you, you've got that bark acronym that you use. I've seen, and I'm, I've seen you do it on Instagram a bunch of times, but that's a recent thing, right? Yeah. So I, I made the bark acronym primarily now that I'm training law enforcement because for the military, Combat or tactical combat casualty care. It's March. If you the March algorithm for first aid, airway, respiration, circulation, head injury, hypothermia, extremities, everything else. Uh, what if I guess we're getting can edit this? So it makes more sense to, since we're talking about it. I came up with bark as because training a lot of law enforcement handlers is they're not. I think every soldier has a certain amount of first aid training. And I think. It's somewhat changing in the United States. But a lot of dog handlers, they're police officers first, dog handlers second, and or vice versa. Um, but they're not necessarily medically trained. 
or you know, a, a couple of years ago, medically equipped. So I would, especially when I have a one or two day kind of inter, an interaction with some of these handlers, or maybe like at uh, ATK nine, right? I'm, I'm interacting with them for one run scenario. I get a lot of confused fate looks. You know, we're going over the March algorithm, and by the end of that, you know, eight hour block of instruction or class, there's still kind of it's not. I mean, it's not the easiest acronym to kind of remember all the various components as well as outside of the necessity for prolonged field care, not every police officer really needs to focus on the secondary survey, in my opinion, of the March algorithm, right? Because I can, I can train you how to notice your dog as a head injury, but there's not a whole lot you're going to do about that in the field. So I focus on training. So bark is just, it's something I think has been easy to remember and really focusing on those three things, um, stop the bleeding, keep them breathing, keep them warm. You're going to, if they're still alive and they're injured, you're going to greatly increase their chances of staying alive and survival once they get to definitive care of the vet hospital. Yeah, nice. Um, and so can you talk us through, like, the actual treatment when you were treating these dogs and you were, like, did you, were you learning through mistakes or was it just the system that you used? You were just like, nah, this is not effective. Learning through mistakes, learning through um, you know, a lot of veterinary clinical medicine being taught as appropriate field care, which does just isn't without the frame of reference that you know, wouldn't consider these things. It definitely seemed kind of common sense or logical after the fact. Um, and then to be honest, a lot of the dogs we received, which is kind of statistically relevant, is if the dogs, the vast majority of the dogs that are injured in those manners, whether they're shot or ex- exploded, they don't survive. Um, so many of the dogs you received, they were already, they were just receiving their remains pretty much. You know, there was, by the time they had died, by the time they got there. Uh, and then, you know, the dogs that I, you know, I, I had done CPR practicing, I practiced CPR before, been trained in CPR, but then the first time really doing it was in Afghanistan. And it's also when I learned, you look like you learned that CPR isn't feeling successful. Yeah, because what's the success rate of CPR? It's fucking low, isn't it? For dogs, is less than which is greater than, than humans, I believe. What is it with, with people? Like 5%? 5%. Unless you're watching you know, a TV show and it's resuscitated with CPR. Sure. <laughs> yeah, because I've, I've never done CPR myself, but I've I've got a bunch of mates that have done it, and none of them ever survived. Well, I've never uh, done a few times. Never had to work. Yeah, it sucks, man. Um, so, dude, one of the questions on Instagram was, um, and it's kind of ties into what you're talking about now and what we spoke about in the last podcast. Like, are there any particular dogs that have had a big impact on you? And can you sort of walk us through their story? Yeah, I've done a bunch. Um... There's been a, there's been a bunch of them. So I think I saw that comment. So talk to that guy. Before. His name's Matt. It's hard to one. Of, you know, one of the first dogs was Max. Uh, he's the first dog, and he was one of the dogs that was assigned to that Ted detachment. And he was the first dog that died. He, uh, well, the first one I kind of knew personally. We built a swimming pool in the back. That came in, 
compound. Max would go swimming. That pool got gross pretty quick. Um, and then, yeah, he was killed by uh, uh, an IED that was placed hastily uh, like we back through a trail they already cleared. Uh, it definitely, Max saved the life of his handler and at least two other soldiers. And then, but I ended up receiving it from Max. Just kind of a whole, you know, it was a shit show. Because he, so seeing what he looked like, what had happened to him, and trying to kind of not really being prepared for that. Um, and so having that kind of visual as well as the, the town, the mortuary affairs, the morgue there in the camp refused to. The, the non-commission officer of that facility outranked me. There was nothing I could do. We didn't have any, but you know, I, was, I was a sergeant. And sergeant was the most ranking person I think in the penal detachment at the time. And I could, uh, we tried to take Max's remains. And again, like to preface this, the, the whole combat support hospital, the flight crew, everyone was great. Like where they got us a flag. We draped Max's remains with the flag. And then when we got to the morgue, the, Staff sergeant in there refused to take Max's remains and put them in cold storage because she wasn't going to put a dog in the same, you know, place as humans, human soldiers. Is that some somehow? Um, yeah. So without a, as in a, she was somehow offended by the concept of a yeah, dog be, and human be, in the same. To be fair, I, I don't know if it was a policy, but I do know it's a policy. Other mortuary affairs. Soldiers were willing to overlook in the moment when, like, we're not talking about putting a camp dog, you know, in cold storage with human soldiers. We're talking about a military dog, a war dog that just died and saved saved lives. And so, yeah, I remember without a, a variety of options at all, I, the only thing I could really think of is we ended up taking Max's remains back to our facility, back to our kennel, our camp, kind of cleared out the team room, put his stretcher. On them, turned the cheek. You know, if you remember the Chigos, or those little portable AC units. So we had a few of those. So we turned them down as cold as we possibly could, and then stayed uh, in there overnight with Max in the middle of the room. But um, I don't think any of us acknowledged it that morning because his handler, his handler had been injured. His handler took some shrapnel, but he, he came. He ended up being released from the the field hospital and coming back to the compound. So we all stayed in there with him and Max. Um, but obviously turning on air conditioning units is not cold enough to preserve or prevent uh, pre prevent decomposition. And so by the time morning rolled around, it definitely smelled pretty bad in that room. Pretend that we didn't want to talk, didn't want to bring it up. I'm just going to pretend like it wasn't there. So like, hey, you know, especially with his hammer still being around. And then the following day, that following day, we ended up getting, so we did also get a hero flight. I've always um, been a bit, big fan of Medivac and Dustock. They've always been willing to fly in out or transport our dogs whenever they were injured or killed. So they, they ended up doing a whole hero flight, transporting up to bottom. It was cremated. So when you had that, when you had Max in the team room and then his handler had come back after being wounded, was that the first time he'd seen Max? Did he already know he passed away? 
pretty sure he was a, he knew he knew Max's dog at that point. I when I put when I bagged up Max's remains, I put him in a body bag. I didn't let because I did that without the dog handlers helping me. So uh, yep. some of the medical officers helped me do it. And um, everyone they had asked to open the bag, uh, but I didn't. After we zipped that bag up, I didn't let anyone open it again because of for a lot of reasons, but even the condition of the remains. So I'm not sure his handler ever wanted to. Um, so he never. Other than when the when the when it detonated, uh, you know, the remains were kept. Sealed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wise decision. And that—that's that's obviously something that's affected you, right? Um, that you, like you said, you probably weren't quite prepared for to see that. Yeah, and I think you know you're kind of naive to like you obviously know things that happen, but even you know being in Los Angeles for three months, you know nothing, nothing that bad's happened. So you really start thinking you're going to run it off the rest of your tour without any anything. Yeah, and what about um what about the other dogs? Um, because I know last time you were talking about um the the sound of the dogs. So like, and I hope we're not going too deep into this. Um, but I know last time you said that that that, that whimpering, whining kind of sound of the dog has a, a an effect on you because um obviously you've got a conditioned response, like a you know maybe a post traumatic response from that. Um, yeah, yeah, and I started noticing that at the tail end of my career, kind of as I slowed down, like as I started being really retired, traumatic through stuff, and um, what ended up being, you know, symptom, you know, pushing my stress. It never really affected me. We had talk. I don't know if we talked about it. It was one. Of, you know, I talked to guys I served with. You know, I never you see guys get out or see guys struggle. And I was always kind of sympathetic to. I never was, you know, like oh you. You know, you dickhead for you know struggling emotionally, but I just yeah. really never ex- experienced it. So I was like, yeah, well, you know, I don't know what that's like. It, <clears throat> it sucks, but like I'm good. And then, uh, yeah, for I think you know, I largely worked without a veterinarian. So a lot of times, if something happened to a dog, it was kind of up to me to, and not always, plenty of help. Even if it was by myself, I should help. Sometimes being like the only medical medic, medical staff around, and really for some of those situations, starting being for beforehand, you're just doing your best. There was, I think, a lot of adrenaline, kind of parasympathetic, kind of adrenaline dump with that. And you know, a lot of times the dogs that do survive, or the dog, even um, just injuries, they whine. And so you know, during kind of down, like just before leading up to COVID. But I was going to be medically, I was being medically evaluated for discharge or retirement. And I think something happened. Oh, yeah. The, um, I had uh, like auditory hallucinations, which I didn't know at the time. Like, I was in the shower, a fire heard dog, like a dog screaming out and pain or whining. So I just I busted out of the shower, <clears throat> just stoked up everything in my. Um, wife at the time, she was playing on the reading with our dogs, um, and she's like, "What you know? Like, what the? What are you doing?" I'm like, I, did you hear that? Like, where is it? Like, what happened? Uh, like, what are you talking about? I was like, I heard a dog whining. Like, zero sounds. Like, there's 
There's no, there's no, uh, there's no reason to come charge another shower. There's no injured dog. Um, and I would kind of hear it. I know it's the thing right? Jumped up. And, uh, but another time, I whimpering, whining. I was just like super sweaty. I've been off really sweaty before, but there wasn't a good reason. You know, I just was like, you know, I feel sweaty. And uh, I remember talking to my, my buddy who was a PA. I was like, yeah, I mean, I don't know what's, I don't know what's happening, but, uh, uh, so he asked what happened. I was like, oh, the dog started whining. Uh, I just like, got really hot and started sweating. And it sounds like, yeah, it's happening. And so then I started to uh, notice that, yeah, even still, if I heard like, whine, I'll kind of, it's, you know, everybody, I'll jump at fireworks, but I'll jump if I hear it. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope you don't mind me saying this and I could totally edit this out, but I remember at AT Canine, um, the uh, uh, diesel dog obviously simulates the whining and the bit of movement and whatnot. And that, that was something that you said was kind of setting you off a little bit, um, giving you that sort of condition response. It doesn't always, um, it doesn't always happen because, you know, something like control, but I think in that scenario when we use the, uh, no spoiler alert, but when we use the gunshot in conjunction with the whining sound, um, you know, even being able to rationalize and know what it is, know it's not real, know it's not training, I, I still have kind of like that spike. Feel that spike in my ears. And then much to, um, and then sometimes like, you know, you can get a little bit more on edge. And I think, you know, some of the handlers come in there and they uh, are dicking around or something and I'm getting like, I'm already kind of a, here instead of here, I think I can be, uh, uh, yeah, I'll start getting a lot more frustrated than me. Yeah. It's still fucking yeah. around. Think the dog's dying yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that sucks, man. And, um, I guess that's, that's kind of your reality, right? Did you, have you ever been a, a diagnosed with PTSD or anxiety or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a post-traumatic stress. Yeah. And what do you do to reconcile that? What's like, how do you deal with it? Um, well, I, I did, uh, I go to, they have a VA here. I don't know what that, you know, the veteran affairs. So that's hit or miss, you know, there's tar, there are horror stories. There are other, like the VA, you know, I'm pretty solid. Don't need hearings, you know, good appointments. But. So I went in there, uh, started with, Started going to behavioral health as I, because as I got evaluated for the med board, and then continued that service. Yeah, and you happy with it? Like you happy with the way it's going? Are you happy with the the treatment you received from VA? Yeah, it's, it's some has been some has sucked. Like there've been some some, and so there can be a high turnover rate, which can make it difficult too. Yeah, that's, I don't, I'm not a fan of prescriptions, pills. So they, um, I think I tried that for like a year or so. They put you on like those incessant But I remember I just like, whatever it was, whatever antidepressant, I just didn't feel like, I, I felt like, not necessarily like shit, but just like nothing. Like you'd lay there in bed and not be really sure whether there's any point in getting out of bed. So it didn't really seem like, I kind of did the thing where they tell you, oh, you just have to, adjust the dose or find the right drug. And after doing about a year of that, 
some of you know, serotonin dopamine started, just uh, stop taking all those. And I've instead, I think, um, being, being active, like fitness and uh, being healthier. And even not so, I don't do the behavioral health appointments as much. I'm going to like start again or keep, keep up with that. But even just talking to other, other dudes, other people that served with has been, um, I think can be massively helpful. Yeah. Do you you think that's like a, like a not being alone thing? If you know that other guys are going through the same or similar thing to you, that it's sort of normalized, I guess. Yeah, I think um, there's been, you know, like guys like Sean and seeing um, uh, not only like seeing guys like Sean, people who got the other side of it and the things they're able to do now. Uh, seeing people that I've looked up to and respected as my guys, junior to them, things that I've done, being able to talk about it. Uh, and yeah, I think that's, that's been some of the most beneficial supports outside of like the VA processes each other. I think, have you done, did you interview Rick, Rick Hogg? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Even like Rick, uh, I had served with Rick, you know, trained in a lot of places. He does. He's a great, great dude. Him, even early this year, you know, um, I got to come to one of the shooting classes. I was talking to him and I said, you know, best job ever had. And he stopped me and said, you know, the best challenge we're going to get. You know, like, you know, been, you know, don't get stuck. In fact, there was, can, at least from what I tendency to do, looking back, never really be like, cool again. Yeah. Um, so I think, like, moments like that mean a lot. And uh, having, uh, having, at least having relations with other guys, uh, have either have served with or served in the same, t- same time period. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, man. And, and I, I like that. I like what Rick said. Best job I've ever had so far. Um, like, well, I'm sure you're the same. I love what I do now way more than the military. I love what I love what I do. It's got so much more purpose and meaning to me. I feel so much more engaged and fulfilled. Do you feel the same about your current job? Do you still miss, because I used to work, you know, a lot more with the dogs themselves. So I miss that. You know, I yeah. don't, I love, I love going to and seeing handlers dogs now, but I don't have the same kind of like, I see the same dogs every day. Um, yeah. You know, I don't miss jumping out of airplanes or anything, but still you know, some of the, you know, some of the training and stuff we got to do, that was always, that was always fun. Uh, but yeah, obviously I've got a better schedule now. Um, I t- tend have the tendency sometimes to, overbook classes, it kind of get start getting worn out from doing like speaking. Um, but yeah, I think that especially law enforcement now being the primary demographic for their dogs being injured or killed in the line of duty. I mean, the law enforcement canine casualties on pace the military is by a lot. It's a large margin at this point. Yeah. They don't really have the same kind of training or judicial support, the support of the training. So, yeah, the idea that I can make a difference for a dog that gets injured or something in their hand or has a first aid kit and knows how to use it. And not just me, but anybody doing that training, hopefully, um, you know, hopefully that will, you know, I've had some messages, which are great. Those are really the messages that keep, because I'm doing a large, largely the same thing I did in the military. Um, 
a lot of the messages I'll get if someone said, okay, my dog sliced open his leg, jumping in a dumpster after his dog gun, put tourniquet on the side, do it. You know, stop the bleeding. Save his life. So I find all that. I really appreciate those messages. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome, man. Yeah. And I know how much like an ATK on how much the guys appreciated the training that they did with you. Um, mate, even even the just that real basic tourniquet thing we we're talking about with the um, with the uh, the crate bandage. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's um, it's hard. It can be difficult to treat a dog that's injured and also knows how to use his mouth to hurt you. Uh, you don't necessarily care that your mom or dad or their handler in that moment. So, um, just trying to set both realistic expectations for those handlers and set them up for success. Like, Hey, if your dog's injured and still awake, this might be a challenge. So here's something that you can hopefully pull off until you can get some extra hands to help. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking good quality training, man. Thanks. Um, mate, let's, I want to sort of fast forward a little bit to when you got posted to SF and then talk about that deployment. Um, which group were you posted to? First Special Forces group for eight, about eight years. So on my 14-year career, I spent a little over half uh, half there, which was, which was great. And what was the reception like as a as a animal care specialist going into a special operations unit? Because they were new uh, to dogs at that time, or they'd already run dogs for a while? They'd run dogs for a while. I met some of the first guys when I you – know, back at the start of my career um, – I ended up, you know, helping out a guy that's now a sergeant major. So he's one of the first dog handlers. So it's kind of cool getting to come. I, I knew him as a private, not at the group. Uh, he was in the 67 as a dog handler. When I, when I came back, I was a sergeant. He was a recent master sergeant, 88. He's a sergeant major. So coming full circle. Uh, and so they have had dogs for probably seven, six or seven years up until that point. The, so the like direct medical support was the new part to me. They had a veterinarian assigned at the group or like headquarters level um, for a variety of things. But then I would be assigned to the kennel as kind of just they would have that organic direct medical support. Yeah. Okay. So were you integrated into the teams? Is that how direct it was? Or you were like base at the kennel and then you'd, Obviously, the whole kennel kind of left on a kind of thing. Yeah, I ended up being both. So the way it worked is the handlers we assigned would leave the teams and come be part of the kennel was kind of its own team. It was set up like a you know, So there was you know, 12, 12 green barrettes and their dogs, the trainer, me, and a kennel master, kennel master acting as, as a team sergeant. Um, so we'd be based largely together in garrison or outside of training rotations or deployments. <clears throat> we'd all train together or just go to training, grab my mate, grab my aid bag, having it like all that stuff. Uh, but then also I'd go with teams overseas, whether it was a training, like a partner force training mission uh, or deployment where I, I did get integrated as a part of the dog package. So I'd either kind of be in a quick reaction force or um, they get to go on, go on some of the missions too as with with the dog handler me the dog handler the dog can you tell us about that um that first deployment then because that was afghanistan as well right 
Yeah, yeah, I went to um, Afghanistan. We it was much different than the first one, right? So it's the uh, infantry, um, infantry brigade. In 2013, they were still those infantry units were still leaving, kind of base to go on presence patrols, all that stuff. Fast forwarding to the special forces deployment. It was really just special operations with the partner assisted. It was really trying to get the Afghan commandos or whoever, you know, to be autonomous with U.S. support. So maybe that team going out, us with a dog, and then sometimes up to 80 commandos. Mm. Um, it was all at night, which is a big change, too. Uh, only fell once walking around under nods, which I was happy with. Um, and it was, uh, you know, did a lot of, I ended up doing a lot of missions. Participated with four dogs for the task force, kind of went out on a rotational basis. Um, most injuries, we had one, one of the dogs was exposed to chemical agents. And that was stressful. Um, so ended up ingesting part of it. I remember trying to call the animal poison control hotline from a satellite phone and Kandahar and then there was no index case, right? So like, hey, it says, what should I do? And like, uh, it's probably, you know, it's probably going to kill him. Um, so it did actually, it ended up looking like that dog was going to die for a few days, but we were able to keep him alive. Uh, one of the side effects was that we kind of had chemically burned his, his nostrils, his nares, and his mouth. And his eyes, he ended up losing his vision, but we weren't entirely sure he could smell. Explosive exposure. Sorry, shortly after that. But that was luckily at the tail end of the deployment because that dog was a replacement for another dog that we had to send back because that dog kind of shut down with field exposure. Just the, the dog didn't like a rotor wash, started to freak him out. And, you know, it's just gunfire. And it's even because we used to have. Apaches or a gunship overhead. So when they would start firing for air support, you know, that would really, that, that dog in particular started to really react to those loud explosions that, you know, to be fair, it's hard to kind of get neutrality to that and get some training. Yeah. Them. Yeah. So can you, like, the dogs that were there, were they assault dogs? So they're bite dogs or were they dual purpose? Multi-purpose, called the, the yeah. multi-purpose cannon program. So there's all those different programs for the the, mil the MWD program or military working dog program is the traditional Department of Defense and Army cannon program. Then there was the IDDs for the Marines, the TED dogs for the Army, mine detection dogs or MDDs for the Army, and then MPCs or multi-purpose canines for special operations. And they would do apprehension, explosive detection, and then track uh, tracking. Awesome, man. Before I, because I want to talk about apprehensions and the, and the tracking aspect, uh, as well as like your operational sort of tempo, that when that dog had ingested that chemical stuff, what what was the situation there? How did he manage to get in, in front of that? So one of the, um, I, I don't know if you ever came across handlers, and this wasn't this particular handler's fault; it was a previous handler. But when you know the, they start playing with their dog with water bottles, and there's <laughs> okay, yeah. Afghanistan, Afghanistan, there's water bottles everywhere. So it happened to be a water bottle full of an unknown, uh, being like an industrial strength cleaning agent. Jesus. And some of the goes and crunches down the bottle. Just got a face full of um, concentrated 
industrial strength cleaning agent or something. Hectic. I, th- I thought you meant it was like um, some sort of explosive or, or IED components or something like that, which I guess it may have even still been, right? Yeah, no, I wasn't. Um, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't being an explosive device. Yeah, lucky. <laughs> yeah. So what about the tracking aspect? Because I know that there's, I've not heard a lot of stories of dogs tracking overseas. Obviously, cops do it day in, day out. Were there any, do the dogs do any live tracks on those jobs? We obviously maintain that in a training environment, a trainer had incorporated tracking in the training on a weekly basis, certified in tracking. Um, guys certified as a handler at one point. And so it was a 800 meter track to board the toy reward and 800 meter track to was the pretty sure that was the tracking certification standard. But overseas, I only know of one case of one of our dogs at least. Um, had a successful track to uh, enemy combatant. Um, I think they were used to track or try to find the general direction potentially. But even, you know, uh, 2017, at least in that stage in the war, um, a lot of times we'd, the, com- the commandos would kind of be the the leading security element. And so anything in front of the commandos wasn't necessarily clear or secure. And so even tracking or sending the dog apprehension-wise after bad guys or potential suspected bad guys <clears throat> wasn't necessarily worth the risk to the dog. Because then you know, if you send that dog that dog on a squirter after a bite, now you have all that open ground between the commandos and that um, where you don't, it's not clear. It's also not secure. And if then trying to push commandos, trying to push commandos forward can be, uh, you know, like herding cats. So it was at that point, you know, was the dog bullets are cheaper than dogs. So there's no point in risking that dog if that guy's just running away and we can't engage him anyway. Yeah, correct. And were you still, was this like counter leadership, medium to high value target sort of stuff? Who are you chasing after? Yeah, there was, uh, HVTs and then, you know, the, the intelligence that the, like shadow Taliban presence in villages, um, illicit material or drugs, drug factories, bomb factories, um, prisons, Taliban prisons, the, yeah, you know, that, that, I guess that's the majority of it. The big spread. That's an interesting little, um, mission set, eh? And what about actions on target? What sort of um, what sort of combat are we talking about here? Real close stuff, or was it a bit standoffish, cordon call out stuff? What was it like? Um, it was at night, and so there was. And I'd be in the command and control element largely, so the dog was in the supporting element or the main element. Um, so anytime, you know, all the gunfights I got in were at at range. You know, it was um, an opposing compound or something with strong point or hold one compound and then start taking rounds from another one, you know, maybe 150, 300 meters away or through an orchard. Um, and the commandos would push in first. It was the commandos supposed to the cordon and then, and then clear and then use the dog. Um, they'd have the, you know, the mine detection, the mine detection wands that, um, and then the dog, honestly, at that point in the, in the war, the dog was there to protect help protect and self-preservation of American, American forces or coalition forces. Yeah, nice, man. Did you, did you lose any dogs in that deployment? No, luckily, um, we didn't, uh, not one of mine. There was a couple 
uh, a couple other dogs that were killed that year, but none of the none of our task force dogs. Yeah, lucky man. That's good. But did you do a bit of treatment, or was it just like heat injury stuff? Obviously, that one dog that inhaled those chemicals. Yeah, there was um, there was that dog. Um, couple. There was another dog that had to amputate his toe because he got stomped on by a cow, a clearing, egressing through. You know, they'd have those. Pretty sure it was a cow. Um, had to kind of maneuver through an open field of cows and. Cow stomp on dog's foot, breaking his toe. Okay. Yeah, unfortunate. Luckily, I mean, it could have been a lot worse getting kicked by a cow. Yeah, yeah, kicked your fucking head off. Yeah. Those things are, yeah. Yeah, we had, there was one, uh, one guy that was K. which was just one guy, one of the infantry, one of the infantry soldiers that was deployed with us for like a security. And how did that happen? Uh, he, he he was a mortarman that got taken with the team mission. And, uh, ended up having an enemy mortar team, like a delayed burst mortar, and basically affected indirect fire, um, exploded in little. Saying his he he and his a mortar team were set up. Wounding them and being oh, okay. So he'd been wounded and then he would have passed away in hospital. Yeah, he did. Actually, he, he passed away before me because I was on the uh, quick reaction force that was hauled out for that troops in contact after taking coalition casualties. Yeah, shit. Did you, were you involved in the treatment of that guy? No, no, he had, um, uh, unfortunately, I did kind of know him because he was a, he was a private. So I'd spoken to him because he'd been on, we'd been on a, like a mission or quick reaction force together. So I talked to him a couple of times. He actually, he had borrowed, this was the first mission he got to go out on. So I was the QRF for this, part of the QRF for this mission. So as we got to stage for the quick reaction force, I saw he was usually with us, but I saw he had kitted up and he was going out with the team. Um, and since I think I talked to him before, um, he was comfortable enough during the pre-combat checks and inspection came and told me that he'd forgotten his, you know, he'd forgotten his, uh, headlamp to show the team sergeant, like, Hey, I got all my shit. And I always carried an extra one just cause I'd use, especially at night, I'd use a headlamp if I was going to have to treat any, any casualties. So I remember I gave him, I gave him an extra headlamp. So I'm off. And especially, you know, most seeing, uh, remember my first, my first mission and all the things I carried, not knowing what I should carry or would be important, just having way too much stuff. Not only that, it was a modern ministry to carry like his base plate and everything, but yeah. seeing how significantly he had overpacked to go out on his first mission. Yeah, that sucks, man. I, especially 2017, because that was like, you know, there's still guys there now. I mean, they were really wrapping up in 2017, 18, 19, right? In, in terms of combat missions, anyway. I'm not sure there's any American forces left in that. Yeah. So what about yeah, the, the... Sorry, go ahead. Say I'm always positive. There's no military... There's military presence in Afghanistan. Yeah. Were there any other major incidents on that deployment? 
that that sort of had that impacted you and had an effect on you anyway? I think most of those those too. Uh, it's pretty stressful keeping Marco alive. Um, and then you know, when when he ended up being killed in action. Yeah. Yeah, right. So what was that, that like then? Again, no, it's good. I, went, I didn't know him well. It was just, it was, uh, it just was, a uh, just sucks overall. Like, I hadn't spoken to him. He was a 20 year old kid. He got married a few weeks before coming on this deployment and then, um, being killed in action. You know, it's very, very first mission, very first deployment, very first mission. Um, I'm not even sure he'd been in the army more than a year, year and a half at that point. Yeah. It's almost like some fucking movie stuff, you know? You're just like, oh, I just got married. It's my first mission. And you're like, oh, bro, this is going to end in a fucking disaster. It's, um, it's fucking tragic, hey? Yeah. Because that, that was the thing that used to upset me the most about overseas, like um, when I heard that guys had died, especially because they were all like young guys, like around my age. And that's the, that was the only thing that really upset me. Like the rest of it, I, I didn't really care about, but um, yeah. So, mate, what was it like then coming back from that deployment? Did you, you would have gone straight back into first group, back into regular training cycle, obviously a bit of post-deployment leave and whatnot. What was the adjustment yeah. phase like? Um, it was harder. It was hard for that trip because we had worked primarily at night. I really uh, thrown off my circadian rhythm. So I had a time sleeping after that. That's kind of when I started having sleeping. I did really like three, like rest, recovery, refit, and stands for. So I got, got good downtime, team sharing at the time. You know, you'd come and ch- check in with him, and then he'd tell you to fuck off for the rest of the day, just make sure you didn't do anything stupid kind of thing. Yeah. Shortly after that, I went and kind of interviewed and worked briefly with Dan, potentially going to move uh, into the, to take that, do that job, do the same thing. And then done a medical evaluation, so kind of confronted with that. So after that deployment too, I started getting vertigo. So like just feeling it was some spin, uh, a lot of pain in my life. And then I had a couple explosions and close to incoming mortars and rockets and then so helicopter and then also playing rugby and having muzzle fighting dogs that had broken my nose and disappeared my jaw a couple times. Turns out like TBI symptoms caught up with me. Um, so I remember the guys at work, some of the guys I still talk to them today, I'd come to work and I'd get out of my Jeep and just vomit on my way in because I'd get motion sick as I got vertigo and kind of uh, dizzy. And so uh, I vomited so much getting sick that I actually got a hernia for a hole in my stomach from so much vomiting. Uh, and at first I didn't really know what's happening. You know, I'm like, oh, fuck. Kind of like the panic attack, get all sweaty. I'm like, I don't know what's happening to me. Uh, so I just kind of, for whatever reason, sort to tough it out and getting sent over to the Philippines go with it kind of throw me in the van so i couldn't really i'd get so nauseous and sick and uh, yeah i kind of go out and can't really do anything 
it started uh, kind of coinciding with my blood sugar too. So the guys, you know, I would carry like gummy bears and stuff. And like if I'd start getting nauseous and dizzy, they're going to grab Evan's medicine. Like here, need some gummy bears before it gets any worse. Yeah. And I kind of initiated the, the medical evaluation board. And then after going to the TBI center, traumatic brain injury center of the army for a number of months, and the, the pandemic started. So I kind of limited the in-person appointments and I was supposed to do like vestibular therapy, eye therapy. So I found out that my eyes were kind of fucked up from getting slightly out of place. So that's why you get some of that eye pain. So these glasses have like prisms that help redirect my point of impact, point of aim. So my eyes not always trying to pull itself back into focus, causing some of those migraines and stuff. Um, yeah, they, yeah, they determined that I would not be able to uh, return to service. So they had this kind of uh, physical fitness tests to to time and do the events as a kind of an evaluation for if you're still fit for service. So I remember doing it, and part of it included this weird somersault, and then I took a knee and just vomited at the end of the uh, at the end of that evaluation. And was that like, just the nail in the coffin? They're like, yeah. 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 We can't, like, we're not rehabilitating you for service. Fucking hell. So what happens there? They just, like, the fast train to get the fuck out of here sort of thing, or? Yeah, it took forever because of the pandemic. Um, ah, uh, yeah, normally, yeah, yeah. Normally it would take, like, six to 12 months. I think mine took, like, 18 months. And I got a six-month internship as I left the Army, where I started working with the nonprofits and the dead mother thing kind of started turning from, like, um, because I started that Den Mother account when social media until then and Instagram had like a false name on Facebook and only had some friends and family. Um, I kind of looking at rejoining the real world, which I thought so. But did so anonymously and then just started really noticed the uh, like law enforcement can in particular, you know, like I just treat their having first aid kits that were designed. You know, someone in the veterinary hospital that's, you know, down like a lot of, it's not for treating trauma in the field. It's like something you buy at the grocery store for when you cut your finger and you need to put some uh, rubbing alcohol and band aid on it. Uh, they started posting information on Instagram account and it turned into working with 10 nonprofits in a six month internship as I left the army. Yeah. And it was that. Partly that anonymous sort of uh, Facebook account, oh, sorry, Instagram account, was that because of the special operations thing or you just didn't want to be particularly public about what you do? It was both. I mean, it was the kind of don't take pictures, don't, you know, don't take pictures, don't be a Navy SEAL about it kind of thing. It's <laughs> um, so a combination of that. Also, I just really wasn't like, like pictures of myself on the internet, you know. You get like, uh, you mean you're like you're afraid of being judged by your colleagues sort of thing. I mean, I, it's a factor there, but also just at the time, which I've obviously found with now as I videotape myself working out, but it was just a foreign con. I don't think I'd ever taken a selfie up until that point in my life. Like I might've been in some, but I just taken Putting pictures of myself on the internet was a really foreign concept to me. Yeah. Ah, oh, well, you've, you've adjusted well, mate. <laughs> but not yeah, in like a... Yeah, totally. 
getting there. Better luck analysis this way. That's the thing. I can, you know, I can teach a class. I can get in front of all these ultimately strangers or maybe people that I've met once or twice or interacted with, and I can teach them a class. But the minute that you start like recording me or I try recording myself, it gets weird. It's weird quick, and we'll see how that continues to evolve. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I was kind of the same in the beginning. Of, I'm obviously over it now, but um, yeah, it's a funny little transition that, hey. But it's necessary too, like as part of your business. You've got to fucking put yourself out there, and that comes with criticism too. Yeah, it's true. Well, I mean, no one's going to say anything to you, Tom. Not with, not with that face. They wouldn't, they wouldn't dare. Mate, like no one's ever said anything to me. Like I've heard a couple of things, but um, are you the same? Like, has anybody criticised the work that you do? Or no, I don't think so. I think some of the guys have given me shit, but not in a not in like a um, malicious way. Just uh, you know, obviously it's kind of is different and probably unexpected. I mean, it was even unexpected for me at the time. Didn't really have a plan to uh, end up doing this, but I'm. I'm I mean, I'm glad I can get and still, still do. Yeah, and I think for you, it's it's the impact you can have on people, right? Is that kind of is that that's your driver, right? I think it's just having a unique experience, knowing that it, um, knowing that it matters. Like, there's moments that it really does matter, uh, and knowing how stressful it is in those moments if you aren't really prepared, you haven't been that guy, not only that guy, but it's not like I was a dog that was trying to figure it out. It was the dog taking the dog to a guy that was just doing and me realizing in the moment, like, I really not know what I'm doing, but there wasn't anyone else to figure it out. So trying to, yeah, just trying to educate and train handlers in a meaningful way so that in one of their worst moments, they at least can say like, Hey, I made a difference or know that they did everything they could. Yeah. I mean, even some of the little things that you've said to me, Oh, sorry. Let off. I've heard you say like, um, at the conference, for example, when you were talking about wound packing, just the way you were describing that and like some of the common mistakes. And I was like, that's exactly what I would have done. I would have made that mistake if I hadn't heard you say that, like the way you, you know, got to plug it and then pack in over your finger and, yeah. yeah, yeah, and then I learned that one of the ways because I'd been trained with when I was treating an arterial hemorrhage was it wasn't stopping. It was really fucking stressful because there wasn't anybody else to be like, hey, can you stop this for me? It was just, I've got to stop this or it's good, they're going to die. Yeah. And so, yeah, just trying to yeah, get some, get that, and even, um, you, know, you saw the Thunderdome, I really call it the Thunderdome, just in kind of trying to train through a bunch of, I mean, it's really stress inoculation, training through distractions, being able to think, oh, there's a bunch of bullshit going on, and it's going to be worse, like auditory exclusion, tunnel vision, when it's your actual dog that's there whining and injured with a gun. And, and seeing, you know, it's kind of people making, looking at special operations training as you know, some of, as a, uh, that scenario-based training, like the length to which they'll go to recreate reality, to train these, um, train the operators, right? It's And then having organizations that are outside of that, outside of special operations, somewhat for some, kind of ha- 
what I've interpreted as this idea that you can't train that way, or that's not how you train. That's how, you know, Green Berets train, or that's how Navy SEALs train. But it doesn't take that much to incorporate realism effective scenario-based training to increase muscle memory and skills rather than, you know, watching a PowerPoint and then sitting around a room talking about what you should do, or even just practicing in a, in a tabletop environment without, without any stress or, or realism is not, it's not there's, a, there's a reason why Green Berets train that way. And there's no reason yeah. you can't incorporate that kind of training into your training program. Yeah, I think that's something that uh, like a lot of the Australian infantry units are doing at the moment is they're taking a lot of those lessons learned from special operations and applying it to infantry. Because it's not like you get shot by a different bullet. You know, you've, you know it's the same bad dudes. So the, all the same principles and, and training should apply. So I like that, man. Yeah, and but that's that's why I like business, right? Because you take what you learned in the military, special operations specifically, and then you take the best bits and you go, here you go. Here's this package. Let's let's remove all the bullshit, all the ego, all the institutional, you know, headbutting and ego stuff, and you know, let's boil it down to its simplest form and solve the problem. That's why I love business. This has been something that's been weird to adapt to. Um, coming from an environment, I felt like it was always in your best interest if someone said, "Have you done this before?" You should say no if you haven't done it before, because it's going to be very apparent if you say yes. You fuck it up. So always say when you don't know how to do something. And, you know, like, even though, especially first integrating into the group, that was kind of scary, right? It's, I don't, I don't know, like, I don't know what I'm doing. But I'm going to say no every time having senior uh, NCO or medic or being brave, like, cool, I'm going to show you. And that was my family reference for, I don't know how to do it. They're going to show me and I'm going to keep practicing it until I can until I'm proficient. So even at ATK9, you know, like you were in there with me and so have you ever packed a woman before I have them pack it? And, the, and most people say yes. And then I watch them like, you've never, never done this before. So you should just, so that's why everyone that came in there was like, no, I haven't. Like, cool, we're going to do it together then. You know, like there's no expectation. You tell me you know how to, and then I watch you. And I said, you don't, you don't know. Why did you say yes? You I clearly don't do this. Yeah. Or they've done it, but they've done it the wrong way, and they've been doing it the yeah. wrong way for years. Yeah, yeah that's possible too. Um, yeah, interesting, man. So talk me through the the leaving process because I want to talk about leaving and then, um, like what you do with the business now, like where you go, who you train with, that type of stuff. Uh, the term of leaving, leaving the army. Yeah, yeah. So, like, all through COVID, and then actually getting out, and you would you would have just been like, did you have nothing, or you already had the den mother thing, and you were happy that was turning into a business? What was the process there? I had the den mother thing, and I had created an LLC um, during COVID. I actually, ended up doing it myself, and I really had focused at the time uh, a lot of effort in working with Canon nonprofits because that was part of my internship. I just kind of had this the idea um, that a lot of these police departments don't necessarily value or want to pay for, or whether they have training budgets or they're not prioritizing medical training. Kenyans um, of Valley was one of the first organizations I spoke to, and it was hosted by them. Actually, it was before COVID. I think that was December of 2019. 
and just saying like, Hey, these canine nonprofits exist and here nonprofits exist to kind of fill these gaps, um, in any organization. And here's a gap. They don't, these handlers don't have, uh, first aid kits. So they don't have good first aid kits and they don't get a, a great deal of medical training on a large scale. So I did a lot of that and then, um, have since just focused more on doing my own business, um, running my business. I've been hosted, get, I get hosted for people will contact me to host classes or I just like the army canine symposium. Um, the army has me come back to help train soldiers and, and veterinary personnel, medical personnel. Um, yeah, so now I train with, uh, still train with the U.S. military. Primary law enforcement handlers. I think even for me in the target demographic, I enjoy training military handlers still, um, but they still have their own kind of direct medical support and even just passing on some of my experience to those military veterinary personnel. So they can, they carry that forward. But then law enforcement, you know, they're still having two to five law enforcement dogs killed monthly in the United States. And so giving them, getting them equipped, giving them training, uh, search and rescue and train search and rescue groups. <clears throat> um, but obviously those risk factors, like trauma is trauma, but the risk factor is a little bit different. You know, largely if a search and rescue dog is getting hurt, it's by accident, not intentionally with a bad guy kind of fighting him or being willing to kill him. And then some, like a, having got to get to go to Africa with uh, leading the canine ranger project. So I'm looking forward to that because it's some of my favorite trips when I was in the special forces group was doing the partner force training, getting to meet, getting to meet dudes from other countries, seeing how like their dog programs kind of worked and uh, getting to train them as well. Yeah. Awesome, man. Um, and dude, just expand a little bit on the canine ranger project. Cause obviously we're going to record a podcast with yourself, Josh and Hannah, um, when you guys yeah. are over there in November, um, give That's us the skinny month. on that. So Hannah is definitely the best person to talk to about the Canon Ranger project as the brains and leader of it. But, um, you know, she has ties and connections there and obviously poaching is a huge issue in Africa. And, um, I learned this quote from Hannah and I don't want to misquote it now, but I think it's something like. Anti-poaching efforts are up to 60% more effective with the use of a canine team. So uh, these dogs through tracking poachers, through locating endangered species, um, I think those kind of primarily are able to in increase conservation efforts. But then at the, the same time, the, the, uh, these rangers over there and these ranger dog teams are kind of supported independently by wildlife trusts. Um, more so than they're obviously they're not they're not federally funded they really have very little support they have you know these you know, these dog teams may uh, you know i don't know again not having to make broad generalizations but they they'll work for days um kilometers miles away from any support just trying to protect these various species or track down poachers so the canon ranger project is trying to bring them training and equipment that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. So, and then rather than bringing them here, we're all going there, right? And then they'll come to us. I think it's about 50 dog teams, 50 canine ranger teams. And this has all been uh, possible through donations, people donating and having uh, auctioning things, having donation campaigns. Uh, and then none of us are, we're not getting 
it's all funded, but we're not making money off of this trip. All of us at least are donating our time to teach. Thanks for listening to that episode of the Origin Canine Podcast. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, subscribe to the YouTube channel, give us a rating on your podcast platform, or go to origincanine.com for our tactical canine equipment, which includes collars, leads, harnesses, and merchandise. Thanks for listening, guys.